We have a guest preacher for today, um, an individual by the name of Daniel Stanfield. Daniel, um, you may or may not know Daniel, but he's... uh, serves at a, a church that is uh, not too far away, a church that uh, many of us have friends, relationships with, uh, serves down at Christ Covenant in Hernando, Mississippi, uh, where he has served since 2010. Uh, Daniel is in the process of um, studying for ordination and um, has been uh, in seminary for, uh, for a little while now, and so uh, he is a candidate uh, with our, uh, uh, our denomination, our Presbytery, Covenant Presbytery. Uh, he roots for the Chicago Cubs, which I find morally offensive, but uh, <laughs> we're both sitting out of the playoffs this year, so we can, uh, we can both suffer with that together. So anyway, Daniel, we're grateful that you're here and look forward to hearing what God would have to say through you. So please come forward. Uh, It's good to be here with you this morning. Let me invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 22, and we'll be looking at verses 31 through 34, and I'm going to sneak a sip of water. It's like a chalice back there. It's nice. Sometimes I get a styrofoam cup. It's impressive. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. So let us hear God's word this morning. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will crow, not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Let us pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes to the truth of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we come into this place on a day that you call us to set aside A day you call us uh, to set aside many things so that we might worship you uh, in a more concentrated way. So that we might be reminded that this life and the rat race of this life is not everything. But that we are called to live for the life to come. That we belong to a different kingdom than the kingdom of this world. We belong to your kingdom. And we can only say that we belong to your kingdom because of your grace that you have shown toward us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask this morning that our hearts would be drawn to him, our hearts that are so routinely drawn after idols day after day. We ask that our hearts this morning would be drawn to Christ, that we would consider him who willingly gave his life for us, that we would see the good news of the gospel in this text, that we would see the truth that you have for us, a truth that is your truth, the truth that is therefore infallible, that is solid, that is eternal, and that is food for our souls. And so we ask this morning that you would help us to feed upon your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with a simple story, a very basic story from my family. Um, I remember my mom telling me about my cousin getting glasses for the first time. And uh, 
That's a very simple thing. But the thing that stuck out to the family was that on the way home, after he got his glasses, he was noticing things all around town that he had never noticed before. He, he was pointing out this and that on the car ride home, and his mom had to tell him, son, those things have always been there. You just never noticed them. They were unseen to you in many ways, and the family didn't realize how bad his vision really was until that car ride home. That story, in many ways, is similar to the experience of a believer in Christ. Before we come to know Christ, the Bible says we have a vision problem, not with our physical eyes, but a spiritual vision problem. We are blind to realities that are present. Realities that are there before us and have been before us our whole lives, but we don't see them until we come to know Christ, and he opens our eyes to these realities. But because of sin and unbelief that still reside in our hearts, these realities that we see soon become forgotten, and we need to be reminded of them, and God's word constantly sets them before us. And so, As we look at our text this morning in Luke 22, there are three truths that I would like to pull out and set before you this morning. And these truths highlight, I believe, three realities that are unseen by the world, unseen by us before we know Christ, and often forgotten by us after we come to know Christ. And those three truths are as follows. So if you are a note taker, Uh, you might want to jot these down. Number one, the church has an enemy. Number two, the church has an advocate. And number three, the church has a calling. The church has an enemy, the church has an advocate, and the church has a calling. So let's consider the first one this morning, that the church has an enemy. Now, to set a little bit of the background and the context for our text, let me say a few things. Most of you should be familiar with the background of this text. It is found at the end of a gospel, so that means that this text is located in the midst of the events surrounding the death of our Lord and Savior. Jesus and his disciples have entered the city of Jerusalem Our Lord knows why he is there. The crucifixion, the event that he referred to earlier in Luke's gospel as a baptism of fire is upon him. In Luke 22, we see our Savior gathering with the disciples in the upper room and they prepare for the Passover and Christ institutes the Lord's Supper. And it is at that meal that he says one of those disciples will in fact betray him. And that comment leads the disciples to talk amongst amongst themselves. First of all, they begin to wonder out loud and question as to which one is going to be the one to betray Jesus. Secondly, they begin to debate among themselves who is going to be the greatest. They have a problem in their midst. That problem is, on the one hand, that one of them is going to betray Jesus, and on the other hand, their hearts are prone to pride. And so Jesus addresses addresses the second one of these, excuse me, by telling them about the true nature of greatness. And then he brings their attention to a concern which comes 
not from among them, not from their own midst, but a concern which comes from outside of them. He says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now let's consider this verse. Jesus begins by saying the name of Simon Peter twice. Now that's a small detail, and because it's a small detail, it's easy to overlook it. But even though it's small, it is important. And so we might ask, why does Jesus say Simon Peter's name twice? Why does he say Simon, Simon? Well, to get an idea of the possible significance of Jesus saying his name twice, it might do us some good to consider a couple of other places in Luke's gospel where someone wants to get someone's attention and they say their name twice. One of those examples is in Luke chapter 8 and specifically verse 24. In that chapter, the disciples are in a boat with Jesus and a storm comes up and the disciples get frightened. But Jesus is asleep. And so the disciples go to Jesus in a panic and they say to him, Master, Master, we are perishing. Another example is found in Luke chapter 10 and verse 41, which is the account of Mary and Martha. And there, Jesus is not dealing with a physical storm. We might say he's dealing with an emotional storm in the heart of Martha. He approaches Martha, who is worried and full of nerves and running about, and he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Master, Master, Martha, Martha. From these examples, we see that this kind of addressing another person by saying their name twice occurs when either something serious is going on, maybe even dangerous, or when you really want to get the person's attention because you want them to hear what you are about to say, or it could be both. And that's what we have here in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus wants to get the attention of Simon Peter, and by extension, the rest of the disciples. And he wants to alert them not only to what he is about to say, but also to a very serious danger that is present. He wants them to know that they have an enemy, and that enemy is Satan. It's worth noting that when Jesus addresses Simon Peter, he doesn't call him Peter at first, but he calls him Simon. By calling him Simon, he is not calling him by the name that implies anything about a rock or anything of substance. In other words, Jesus is stressing that Peter, like all of his disciples, is at the end of the day a frail human being. He is weak and he is prone to unbelief. He wants to bring their attention to the reality that they have an enemy, but they have an unseen enemy. And what do we find out about this enemy in our text here before us? We see that he is opposed to the cause of Christ and to anyone who would pledge loyalty to Jesus. He wants to bring harm to the church of Christ. And we see this especially in verse 31. The word you, which is found two times in this verse, is actually in the plural form. Your Bible might actually have a footnote that indicates that it's in the plural form. 
In other words, Jesus is saying that Satan demanded not just to have Simon Peter, but Satan demanded to have all of the apostles. He wants them all. He is after all of them. He has them all in his sights. And what does he want to do to them? Jesus says that Satan has demanded to have them so that he might sift them like wheat. Now, this imagery is not initially clear to us, even though it would have been to the disciples as they heard Jesus say these words. Obviously, this is agricultural language. The process referred to here by our Lord is the process of separating the wheat or the grain from the outer husk or shell. Uh, The goal, of course, was to get the shell out of the way so that you might have that grain of wheat. Uh, The shell or the chaff, as we call it, would be swept away. It would be blown away by the wind. The Lord actually uses a similar metaphor in the book of Amos to talk about the church, to talk about his people. Uh, In using this image in the book of Amos, God is wanting to stress that among his people, he has those who truly believe, those who truly trust in him, and those who only say that they believe, those who have a faith in name only. And he goes on to say that he will separate his people from those who only claim to trust in him. It's that idea of separating that is key for us to hit on here in our text. Jesus is saying that Satan desires to separate or sift, but what he wants to separate is the disciples from their loyalty to Jesus. He believes that if he applies enough pressure to these men, he will make them run away from Jesus. He will expose them. He will reveal that they have no faith in Christ And he will leave them as chaff on the threshing floor and they will be swept away. They will all be blown away and they will flee this Jesus they claim to love so much. But note something else in our text. Satan wanted to do this very thing to the apostles. He wanted to sift them like wheat. So why had he not already done it? Jesus says that Satan demanded to have them. We should note that the enemy of the church is not autonomous. He is a dog on a leash. He must appear before the Lord and make requests. And this is important for us to remember. We recall here the language of Job chapter 1, which was our Old Testament reading this morning, where Satan comes before the Lord and requests to test a servant of the Lord. Of course, our enemy believes that He is entitled to test us. He believes that he has rights on the people of God. And so he doesn't come and make a humble request before the Lord. No, he makes a demand. Nevertheless, he must get permission to go after any of Christ's disciples. The Lord is the only sovereign one. He is the one in ultimate control. Only he has rights over us. Satan, we might say, must apply for a permit. So what do we learn here by way of application here in verse 31? What portable truth can we take with us this morning? 
One is that we simply need to be reminded of the reality of what we call spiritual warfare, that we have an enemy as the church of Christ. The New Testament regularly reminds us of this fact. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have a struggle before us as followers of Christ in this life. That struggle is often unseen, and our enemy is unseen, but that struggle is real, even though we often forget about it. It is with our enemy, the devil. And we need to be reminded that Satan is just as opposed to the cause of Christ and to the church of Christ as he was here in Luke 22. The Apostle Peter, who received this warning, reminds us of our adversary in 1 Peter 5, 8, when he calls the church to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The book of Revelation in chapter 12 and verse 12 gives us insight into the psychology of our enemy. In the aftermath of Christ's victory on the cross, when it says, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Our enemy knows that he is defeated. He knows the clock is ticking. He knows his time is short. And he wants to inflict damage upon the church. He wants to sift the disciples of Christ like wheat even today. So let us be sober-minded. The world will sell you a version of reality and ask you to drink it in. And it will be easy to get intoxicated and drunk upon that version. But the Bible calls us to be sober-minded. The Bible calls us to turn away from the world's story about what is real and to pay attention to what the Scriptures tell us. We are called to be sober-minded and watchful. We are called to remember that we have an enemy as the church. A second word of application in this point is to remember to pray for your leaders, and specifically your leaders here at Grace Community Church. It is worth noting that Satan attacked the apostles. And who were the apostles? They were ordinary men, to be sure, but they were ordinary men who had been called to office in the church of Christ. Now, we don't have apostles anymore, at least not in the sense of an office. Their office was temporary but foundational. But today in the church, we still have officers, not apostles, but elders and deacon. And Christ still calls ordinary, frail, weak men to occupy those offices, to serve in his church And I would remind you this morning that the strategy of Satan is still the same. He desires to sift the officers of the church like wheat. He desires to apply pressure to the elders and the deacons of Christ's church. They have an enemy who wants to tear them down. And so pray for your leaders and your families in private. Encourage them when you see them. Elders and deacons, remember that you are involved in spiritual work. And this especially needs to be said of the deacons, where it is easy to think that the work is just physical. But 
If you've ever participated in a mercy case, you know that it is spiritual work. Be watchful, be sober-minded. The reality is, however unseen, we have an enemy. Secondly, this morning, we need to be reminded that the church has an advocate, a beautiful reality, unseen in many ways, often forgotten, but we need to be reminded of this reality. The church has an advocate. So many times in God's word, we see a hard truth followed by a comforting truth. And this is what we find in verse 32. After warning Simon Peter and the rest of the apostles, Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What do we see here in this verse of Scripture? First of all, we see the implication that the demand or the request of Satan has actually been granted. The enemy of the church will be allowed to test these disciples. He will be allowed to apply pressure and to sift them. But more importantly, we need to note that Satan is not the only one who made a request. No, Jesus says that he has prayed for Peter. The word you hear in verse 32 now moves into the singular. Jesus is focusing in on this one disciple. He moves from talking about the group of apostles to focusing in on one of them, probably as a first among equals. He says that he has prayed or made a request on behalf of this man, this fisherman, this Simon Peter, who far from being a rock is a weak and frail man who is prone to sin. Peter has an advocate. And what does Jesus request? We should note that Jesus does not request that Peter be kept from trial and testing. He does not request that Peter be shielded from hardship and even tears. And he does not request that Peter be immune from public failure. No, our Lord requests that in the face of all of this, Peter's faith may not fail. The Greek word that is translated in this expression about Peter's faith not failing carries with it the idea of disappearance. This word occurs, for example, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 45, which describes the events surrounding the crucifixion. And the verse says, while the sun's light failed, while the sun's light failed, what does it mean for the sun's light to fail? That's a way of saying that the light of the sun had gone away. It had disappeared. Darkness covered the land. And so when Jesus says that he prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail, he is saying that he prayed for Peter that his faith would not go away, that his faith would not disappear, that his faith would not be extinguished. Trials would come, yes. Testing would come, for sure. Sifting would come. But Peter's faith would ultimately not fail. No matter how difficult the circumstances would get, this weak man this fisherman, this apostle, would somehow still retain faith in Christ. And it would be because Jesus had prayed for him. Now remember what Satan demanded. He wanted to sift the apostles like wheat. He wanted to remove their faith and he wanted to leave them as empty shells 
on the threshing floor. And Jesus, in a sense, granted this demand. But Peter's hope was that a request had been given by his advocates, an advocate of the flock of God, a request made on his behalf, amazingly so, by the very Son of God, by the Word made flesh. The only way that Peter could stand in the face of this sifting and in the aftermath of a very public and embarrassing and humiliating failure is that Jesus had prayed that his faith would not fail. I think it's helpful and instructive for us to remember another of Jesus' disciples at this point by the name of Judas Iscariot. He is known to us, obviously, as the one who betrayed our Lord into the hands of those who would crucify him. He was a disciple like Peter. Peter, we know, would go on to deny Jesus multiple times, even with cursing. Judas' betrayal would lead him down a path of despair, which would end in a very tragic way. Peter, however, after his betrayal, would go on to become a very powerful preacher and proclaimer of the gospel of the resurrected Christ. And so we might ask, what is the difference between these two men? Both men were disciples. Both publicly turned their backs on the Savior. Both were sifted. The difference was that Judas was a disciple in name only. He had no faith. There was no grain of faith in Christ. There was only a husk. There was only a shell. Peter, however, had faith in Christ. And that's not reason or ground for boasting on Peter's part. The very faith that he had was a gift from Christ. And the sustaining of that faith through the trial... The very reason that Peter was not left to be just a husk was because Christ had not only given him faith, but had prayed that his faith would not fail. Peter had an advocate. He had one who was interceding for him, the very Son of God. When we speak about the work of Christ, it's regular in our circles for us to speak about him as being our prophet and our priest and our king. And This language is helpful, especially when we begin to understand what those terms mean. Regarding Christ's work as our great high priest, the Shorter Catechism, uh, in an attempt to define what that is, says the following in question and answer 25. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? In other words, how is Christ a priest to us? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. When we think about Jesus as our priest, our focus typically is on his work of atonement, and rightly so. Jesus, as our priest, shed his blood upon the cross so that our sins might be covered and the wrath of God turned away. It is because of his work on the cross that we have hope. But the Shorter Catechism also reminds us of another aspect of Christ's work as our priest with the words, in making continual intercession for us. What does that mean? That means that Jesus prays for his people and he does so continually. In verse 32, I need to mention again that 
the word you is in the singular. And the importance there is that when Jesus prays for his sheep, he prays for them as individuals. He is telling Peter that he has prayed for him as Peter. He has prayed for this fisherman. He has prayed for him by name. He knows Peter better than he knows himself. He knows his frailties. He knows his weaknesses. And so this morning, I say to you, to encourage you, brother and sister in Christ, you have an advocate, unseen as he is risen and ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's easy to forget this reality, but you have an advocate in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he prays for you. He prays for his sheep. He prays for you by name. The the prayer that Peter's faith would not fail was not just a one-time prayer offered up for this apostle, but that is a prayer that Jesus prays for his flock. He prays for you that your faith may not fail. As you battle this coming week against your besetting sins, as you struggle in a world that hates the gospel and that hates the cause of Christ and the church, as you feel the attack of your unseen enemy, remember that you have an advocate, you have a priest, you have one who is praying that your faith would not fail and his name is Jesus. Let this truth be an encouragement to you this morning as you seek to follow him in a very difficult world, as a pilgrim in the wilderness of this life, dealing with your own sin and the devil as he assails you. Remember that you have an advocate. Lastly, this morning, we need to be reminded of the reality that the church has a calling. The church has an enemy, the church has an advocate, and the church has a calling. Jesus not only says to Peter that he has prayed for him, but he gives him a mission, we might say. He gives him a calling. He says in verse 32, And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He calls Peter to the task of strengthening his fellow disciples or his brothers. What do we see here? For one thing, we see Jesus reminding Peter that these fellow disciples are not competitors. They're not rivals, but they are family members. Peter is to regard them as brothers. These disciples who earlier were debating as to who was the greatest are to consider one another as members of the same household, members of the same family. They are bound together, and Peter needs to keep this in mind. And he has a calling with respect to these brothers, these family members. And what is this calling? He is called to strengthen them. And so we might ask, what exactly is Jesus calling him to do? What does it mean for him to strengthen the brothers We see this language of strengthening other believers in other places in the New Testament. One example is in the book of Acts, chapter 18 and verse 23. We read this of the Apostle Paul. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul was about the task or call of strengthening the brothers and the sisters, strengthening the fellow believers, the disciples. To strengthen a fellow believer means to establish them, to confirm them, to exhort them in the faith. We're all weak, okay? We all struggle in this life, and 
as we struggle and as we seek to follow Christ in this life, we begin to wobble and we begin to fall over and we start to grow weary and we start to grow faint hearted. And what we need in those moments is we need to be established. We need to be strengthened. And Jesus is calling Peter to this task of going and strengthening his brothers. And this reminds us that our Savior, while praying that our faith would not fail in the sifting that we experience as followers of Christ, he uses other believers to strengthen us in our walk with Christ. He uses other disciples. Excuse me. He uses our brothers and sisters to strengthen us, to establish us. And to our ears, this sounds weird because we know what Peter is going to do. We know about his failure. We know how weak he is. And it seems odd to us that Jesus would call such a man to this task of strengthening his brothers. Ironically, Peter would learn about this calling to strengthen the brothers by learning about his own weakness first. His trial would become the training ground where Jesus would teach him what he really means about strengthening his fellow disciples. Of course, Peter doesn't think that he's weak. He boasts of his own strength and loyalty in verse 33. He says that he will go with Jesus to prison and he will go with him to death. It's very noble sounding. It sounds nice. It's a great soundbite. Peter is realizing that trouble is on the horizon. He is realizing that Jesus is probably going to be arrested. And there are going to be difficult times, but his focus is still on his own strength, and he is clueless that that strength is an illusion, that he is really weak, that his strength must come from Christ and not from himself. And so Jesus tells him that far from being courageous, Peter is going to fail. His faith will not fail, but he will fail. And he will fail publicly, and he will fail dramatically. And if it were not for the sustaining power and prayer of Jesus, he would crumble under the pressure of his failure. The good news is that Jesus will turn this failure into a strengthening of Peter so that he can go out and strengthen his brothers In fact, the amazing thing is, unbeknownst to Peter and Satan, Jesus is going to take the evil intentions of the devil and he is going to use them for his own good. He is going to take the devil's desire to sift Peter like wheat and he's going to use that to sift Peter. But he's not going to separate Peter's faith from him. He's going to use this to sift Peter and separate his self-sufficiency and his pride, and his sense of his own strength. To make him aware that he is weak, and it is in that weakness and the soil of that weakness where he is going to teach Peter what he means when he says, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. It has been well said that to grow up as a Christian, you must learn to grow low or to grow down. Because our Savior loves us, he teaches us the path of humility. He teaches us the path of service, because this is the path that he trod. And in teaching us these great Christian virtues, he brings us 
to a low place, a place that we really don't want to go because it reminds us that we are nothing apart from him. It reminds us that we are weak, but he takes us to that place so that he might show us, yes, our weakness, but also his strength, and so that he might display his strength in and through our weakness. Christ does not cause us to sin, and he never wants us to glory in or wallow in or rationalize our sin. However, he does want us to see that we are weak and that any attempt to live the Christian life apart from him is folly and vanity. And so he opens our eyes to the reality that we are frail. We are given a calling to strengthen our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And while it is true that this calling falls in a unique way upon the elders of Christ's church, there is a sense in which it also falls upon the general office of the church. It falls upon every believer. And it's a calling that is often unseen and easily forgotten because this calling to strengthen other believers and the strengthening that results often grows in hidden places and it blooms very slowly, but it is there. And so don't be discouraged. Jesus will bring you low as a follower of Christ to show you the reality of this calling. He is bringing you low so that you can turn again, so that you can go and strengthen other disciples. And how do we strengthen? How do we confirm them? How do we establish them? Our tendency when we think about strengthening other Christians is to misdiagnose the problem and then we offer the wrong medicine. And Jesus brings us to a low place to show us that he is the medicine. He is what we need and he is what other believers need. And so he brings us to that place to say, go and strengthen them, which means point them to me, point them to their need of me, and I will make them strong. Let me close with this passage from 1 Peter. These are words of the Apostle Peter from chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. He says this, the Apostle Peter, who failed and who had turned again to strengthen his brothers, he says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we leave this morning, let us be reminded and remind each other of these realities, which are unseen, which are forgotten. The church has an enemy. The church has an advocate. And the church has a calling. Let us seek to be encouraged that our Savior prays for us, and let us seek to strengthen one another. All praise be to him who is our Savior and our strength. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is an amazing account to see Jesus saying very hard things to the Apostle Peter and the other disciples, but encouraging them that he is their advocate He is their Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying in our place. We thank you for interceding for us continually. We pray that that you would help us to remember that the only way we are able to stand today and tomorrow and the next day 
against the onslaughts of our enemy and the temptations of this world and our flesh is because you are praying that our faith would not fail. We pray that you would help us to look for opportunities to strengthen one another, to remind one another that your grace is sufficient for us. And we praise you, O Holy Spirit, that you give us desires to follow the Lord Jesus in this life. You give us a love for God, however imperfect in this life, we begin to truly love the one who made us and the one who saved us. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and pray all this in light of your grace and mercy. Amen.